When I decided to become a journalist, it was for a bunch of reasons. I liked writing. I liked people paying attention to me. I liked seeing behind the scenes. I guess really, I liked the temperature of it all, the action. It was a career with buzz. That's why I became a journalist. My daughter Casey graduates high school this week. She's almost 18, and next fall she's off to college. Over these past 18 years, I've missed almost no parent-teacher conferences. I've missed almost no plays, no recitals, no swim meets. I've gotten to know her teachers, her friends. I've been there to take her to the hospital. I've been there for every birthday party. I've even been the class dad. And I'm not saying any of this to brag, but what I'm saying is, I thought being a journalist was all about the access. It truly is. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Eli Saslow, the Pulitzer Prize winning Washington Post writer and a man who smokes cigars and flies a private jet. Okay, that's not true. This is episode number 210. Let's sling some Yang. All right, well, Eli, we were just uh, we were just texting before we started that I think we were both walking our dogs at the same time, and I just want to say that my dog, she took a shit and she peed, so that was a very wow. successful and both in about three minutes. That's great. Is it, is it what's the grass situation near your house? That that can be a problem. It's fake turf. She pees in the front by the fake turf in Southern California. There's a lot of fake turf here. It's uh, real grass. It's like a, a perfect situation for our dog after after. You know, her early years were all like city streets and, and uh, that was problematic. She, she came here and it's just a, it's, it's a bathroom paradise. So she, she, she succeeds easily now. My mom will always be like, I'll be like, mom, how come you don't call? Like, I always call my parents. They don't call me. I call almost every day. And I'm always like, why don't you call? And she's always like, you just seem so busy with, you just seem so busy with writing. And I'm like, yeah, I'm actually calling you as my dog is taking a dump. I'm not really that busy. You're overstating oh, the busyness of this profession. Interesting, because I have the exact same dynamic. Where my, I, I mean, my parents probably have not called me in ten years. I talk to them four times a week, but it's always because I call them, and they they also say like, well, you don't pick up. I think it's also like a generational thing where you know if I if I see them call and something's going on, I just call back a few minutes later. Um, but their their feeling is always like. If I call, they would pick up if the house is on fire, which I appreciate and love. But it's just, I think that that makes it so that they always end up calling me. Do you have a parent who picks up his or her cell phone, no matter who is calling? It could be like 800. It could be block number. It could be anything. And they pick up. Totally. Like like at a, at a family dinner, like at a yes. wedding reception. It's like, oh, my phone's ringing. And they, and they immediately have to answer. It's just, it's still such a novelty that it's like, we're getting a call. We have to pick it up. It's definitely strange. When I'm reporting, like, I'm not sure if this is true for you too, but now like I, it used to be like maybe first send somebody an email, first try calling. Now it's like text. If, if I if I can come up with a cell phone number on Nexus, whatever else, um, I will usually start with a text message because that's where people are by far the most responsive. Wait, I love when this thing goes where I don't see it going. I've been talking about this subject a ton lately. In fact, I just had the conversation with the journalist friend of mine the other day, and he was talking about all these years in the business. He's still very apprehensive about cold calling people that he doesn't love cold calling people. And I was like, well, this is the best generation for you because now you just, I always text someone first and then I actually text them again. And sometimes I'll text them three times before I ever call. Same. Yeah. But that's changed. I mean, and I actually... I wouldn't say I mind cold calling people so much like, and in this job, there's still times where you also like just, you know, cold show up at somebody's door, right? It's, you have to, you have to do that. Um, but what I found is that people pick up the phone a lot less frequently. Also home numbers um, are increasingly useless, right? Like nobody, people don't have home phones and they don't use them. Uh, and, you know, I also know my own habits. If somebody calls me from a number I don't recognize, I never pick it up. Like right. I, it, it rolls voicemail. I wait until they leave a message or they text me. And, and I think the same thing happens when I'm trying to reach out to people. So, you know, if I text them I, and also it gives you a chance to say quickly, here's who I am. Here's what I'm doing. Here's why I'm reaching out to you. And, and usually then the text comes back a lot quicker than, than like a phone gets picked up. Uh, but that's, that's changed over the last 15 years. I'm sure. I recently said to someone that the best subject to reach out to as far as getting time and a response 
senior citizen home just out of the hospital recovering from an injury watching TV. Do you have anyone better? I, th- I think that's it. I mean, you, you know, maybe like, uh, yeah, recovering from COVID. That's been a lot of my, my, uh, my calls over the last year. But yeah, if, you, if, you're, if you're trying to reach somebody, if you're trying to write about somebody and they're over 70 and they have a listed home number, that's like paradise. Like you uh, also, those are the people that you can find, you know, with huge spending huge amounts of their time on Facebook and, and Facebook for me has become just a massively crucial reporting tool. I mean, it's um, I don't, I don't use Twitter a lot for reporting, but like if I'm, if I'm looking to, to find a character for a story, if I'm trying to, to learn about somebody that I'm writing about, Going and finding them on Facebook, uh, where like comments are really searchable, their 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 news feeds are searchable. You can get a pretty quick sense of somebody's universe on Facebook, um, and also Facebook groups. Uh, finding finding people that I'm looking to write about through Facebook groups has been just like a hugely invaluable resource to me over the last year. I mean, I, I, the last story I did was I was looking to write about um, landlords who are really struggling in the pandemic because uh, they're not getting paid rent. And, and, you know, a lot of landlords in the country are small landlords uh, who, who might, their income might rely on one or two properties. And, and, you know, if you go on Facebook, of course, there are like 42 groups for landlords who are getting crushed by the pandemic. And, you join those groups, you can start reading everybody's stories in their own words, you get a sense of who people are, and then suddenly reaching out to them like you have some backstory already. So Facebook, I think, is uh, just a, a remarkable reporting resource in terms of getting a sense of the people you're going to write about. By the way, that was an amazing segue into what I wanted to ask you about, which is your most recent story is called The Battle for 1042 Cutler Street. And it took you to Glorious Connected in New York, a place I've been. You basically followed around a landlord trying to collect. And um, the lead to your story was the landlord had, hi- had highlighted the first day of the month in, on his office calendar and marked it as payday. But now the first day had come and gone, the one week grace period was ending. And for the 13th consecutive week, Romeo Budhu had collected less than half of his total rent. Time to try begging for it, he said. And he grabbed his booklet of receipts and walked out to his car. He drove through low-income neighborhoods of Schenectady, stopping at a half dozen small homes that accounted for most of his income and all of his family savings. Thanks for at least trying to work with me, he wrote on a, on a rental receipt. He collected $200 from a renter who was $1,600 behind. I'll come back tomorrow, but who said, then he continued up the street to his uh, oldest property, a three-story home that had helped lift him into the middle class and was now sending him closer to bankruptcy. And it's this really freaking engrossing piece about basically tagging along with this guy. And I was fascinated a million ways over. How did you even end up in Schenectady? How did you end up traveling along with this guy? Yeah, it's uh, thanks for asking about it. It's just as a quick aside, because some people I think listening might, might find it funny, but are you, do you know, Wright Thompson very well? Are you, are yeah. you, uh, yeah. Are you, so Wright is, uh, is good at many things, but probably the thing that he's best at is restaurant recommendations. And, and I had forgotten before going to Schenectady that before I make any trip, I should just be like, right, where should I eat in this place? Um, because I thought maybe like in Schenectady, nobody could possibly have good restaurant recommendations. But of course, when that story ran, Wright sent me an email and was like, hey, did you eat at this place, this place, this place, this place, and this place? Uh, so he, he even had Schenectady dialed in terms of food. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so, so for me, like often, especially like writing for the Washington Post, what I'm trying to do is, is find a way to tell stories about the big issues in the country, um, but but make them felt and personal and, and not sort of like abstract conceptual stories, but narratives about people's lives. So, you know, in this case, and, and frankly, in most cases for me, that starts with like a big picture idea of here's a big thing that's going on in the country and how can I figure out a way to write about it um, in, in a way that's like personal and, and intimate and immediate and has a lot of tension. So, you know, in this case, I had been reading stories about how you know we these these eviction moratoriums have been extended now for a year and a half, right? Since since the pandemic started, we're not evicting people from their homes um, necessarily because people in the country are struggling massively and they can't afford to pay their rent. Uh, but on the other side of that exchange, often were these really small landlords, in some cases like immigrant landlords who might own one or two properties who have no way to get this money and, and who themselves now are, are increasingly at risk of foreclosure um, and, and it's creating huge problems in cities around the country. So I, I sort of knew that in an abstract way and thought if I could write about you know, a landlord in that situation, that might be an interesting character. And, and so then started to, started to look around the country at you know, what cities is this happening in, where, where is it happening like at, at higher volume and just 
kind of like reporting through a funnel where you start with this big idea and then it's like getting smaller and smaller until I saw, oh, Schenectady, like half of the properties there are rentals. Almost all those properties are owned by small landlords. The landlords in that community are, are mostly immigrants who came to the country and bought these really cheap properties and are trying to make a living off of them. So I got interested in Schenectady, uh, joined Facebook groups for like New York landlords, started talking to all these landlords in Schenectady. And, and then- you Wait, know, talking to them via Facebook mainly? Via Facebook and then over the phone, like it's, uh, you know, I, I, you do it too. But it, but so much of our so so much of this kind of reporting for me is almost a little bit like casting for characters. I, I'm if I if I just went and wrote about like the first landlord that I talked to, the story might work out. It might be great. Um, but but there would be a huge degree of variability, right? I'd be taking like a real a real chance, um, and and a chance that I can't really afford to take if I'm telling the Washington Post, hey, I'm flying disconnected. I'm going to do this story that you're going to put on the front page. So I have to be fairly dialed in and feel pretty certain once I get there. So so there's this long phase of pre-reporting where instead I talk to six, eight, ten landlords and and get a sense of who I might want to write about. And in those calls. I'm trying to figure out the person I'm curious about, but I'm also trying to figure out who has something going on right now because narrative stories are always going to be better if I'm there to see something, if there's tension that's gonna be playing out when I'm there. So I'm asking these landlords, when are you going around to collect rent? Like how many people are behind? Are, are you going around next week when I'm gonna be there? Because I'd love to be there as you're going from house to house. And, you know, and, and through that process, uh, I, I started talking to Romeo. He was, uh, his life was collapsing, this, this landlord in Schenectady. And I thought, all right, I wanna, I wanna go write about Romeo. Um, but I, I knew still that telling the story just from the landlord's perspective wasn't right and wasn't fair. Because on the other end, there are also these tenants who are paying not because they don't want to, but because they can't and their lives are falling apart too. So once I got there and started going around with him, I realized that the nexus of his problems was really inside this one house, like the first house that he'd ever bought, um, a house that he put all of his savings into, and a house that gradually had lifted him up into the middle class and it allowed him to send his daughter to college. Um, and now for the last 16 months, this house had had he had not paid him anything. And every month he was missing out on $1,000 and now he hadn't paid his property taxes. There was a lien on the house and his life was sort of collapsing. So, so it sort of became clear to me at that point, like, this is a story of one house. Like I, I can tell the story of this kind of housing crisis that's going on in America through this one house. And, and the first section will be with the landlord, but then the next section will be with the tenant. And, and you know, I think some of doing stories that are fair is, is not inhabiting one perspective um, or one version of that story. But, but the great thing that we can do is we can kind of move the camera around. And, and, and the first section can be a landlord who doesn't understand why this fucking guy isn't paying him any money in the house. And the next section can be the tenant who's, who's trying to take care of his 13-year-old daughter and who got laid off twice during the pandemic and, and who, who is living in a, a shithole with no heat and is saying, why is the landlord putting me in the situation. So, you know, and there's truth in both of those. Um, yeah, I think for me, I'm always trying to do stories that are like going to be uh, nuanced and, and complicated. Like so much of, of, of what we do as a country is oversimplify and, and, and announce that we're certain about things without really knowing about them. Um, you know, and I think some of the gift of good stories is, is that they can be nuanced and, and can go beyond stereotypes and deepen our understanding of some stuff. All right. So you get this guy, Romeo, who's, in a shitty place in his life to let you follow him around. And he opens up to you. Then you get this guy, Alfonso Hill, who lives there and is an unemployed cook who can't pay the rent to open up to you. I mean, that's a real trick. And most people, you know, I'm old enough where I've knocked on a lot of doors and generally there's a real distrust when you show up at someone's house and blah, 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 blah. Um, sure. How do you get them to open? How do you even get, how do you get Romeo to say, yeah, come on, follow me around. It'll be, it'll be great. You're going to have a great time. Well, in, in this, in that story, it was particularly complicated because I knew that if either perceived me as like an ally of the other, I was, I was screwed, right? Like if, if, uh, you know, if, if Alfonso even saw me riding around in the car with, with the landlord, he was going to associate me with the landlord and he was going to be much less likely to trust me. So I'd say the primary complication in that story was, was making sure that, that I, I remain neutral, even while building trust and being empathetic to both people in the situation. Um, in general, though, like I, I think I, I build trust with, with Romeo and Alfonso the same way I do in every, in every story, which is like, you know, this is basic and everybody listening, I'm sure knows, but as journalists, like we can't 
we can't promise anybody anything when we write about them. Like nobody I ever write about is getting paid. Uh, nobody, nobody has control over what I write. Nobody even gets to see what I'm going to write about them until it's published, right? Because otherwise we'd be like empowering people to be the editors of their own stories, um, which, which nobody is very good at. So instead, the only thing that I'm promising when I call somebody up and say, hey, I want to write about this is um, I'm saying, I think what's happening is really important. And, and I think it's important not just to you, but to a lot of other people in the country who are going through the same thing. And maybe if some people understand this better um, and, and even some people in power understand this better, there'll be, there'll be more empathy and, and maybe even some solutions on a wide scale to, to some of these situations. Um, and, and I think the truth is most people, especially people who aren't written about often and, and who aren't famous and aren't paid much attention to, they want to feel seen and they want to feel like their, um, you know, their struggles and their challenges and their pain matters and, and is validated. Um, you know, and I think that's, that's often like why people decide to participate. And then it's, it's all the little, you know, interpersonal things like, you know, me trying to arrive in people's lives, not from a place of judgment, but, but hopefully from a place of like, understanding and empathy and and me being comfortable like eating wherever Romeo wants to eat and and you know riding around whenever he wants to be to ride around and, and sort of setting my own life aside when I report it's it's the only time in my life now when I'm reporting where I leave my phone in my car just so I don't look at it and I don't pay attention to my own life and I just focus on the person who who I'm there to focus on uh, because I've, I've had times where I've I've looked at my phone or gotten a message and, and checked it while, while somebody was telling me about a situation that was really important to them. And that, that cuts to trust really quickly. Um, and, and it's not a mistake I want to make again. So, you know, I think some of it is, is just kind of um, being willing to be a listener and an observer in people's lives and, and also doing it in a way that, that um, hopefully proves to them that you're, you're going to, you're going to get it right. You're going to do justice to their circumstances. Um, if they, if they allow you to, to see things and spend the time doing that. You have the landlord and then there's this guy, Alfonso Hill. And you wrote in sort of introducing him, you said, Alfonso Hill, watch him inside the house until the landlord walked back into his car. Yeah, like you need my money, Hill said after he watched the landlord drive his Mercedes up the block. And then he came outside, lit a cigarette and sat on the porch. So you drive around with the landlord. You obviously, I'm guessing you did not call Alfonso Hill ahead of time. Was this a knock on the door sort of thing? Yeah, this is a knock on the door sort of thing. And, and you know, on a trip like this, I was probably in Schenectady for uh, five or six days, enough time to eat at all the places Wright had recommended, if only I'd known about them. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I'm riding around with Romeo, not once, uh, but, but every day, right? Like, I, like I, I would say there's no, there's no shortcut uh, in reporting for time spent with the people you're writing about. And that goes for like, if you're interviewing 300 people for a book, like the, the, in my experience, the second hour you're on the phone with somebody interviewing them is inevitably going to be better than the first hour you're on the phone with them. Like you're, they know you better, they're more comfortable. You've heard versions of stories. You can ask better questions. It's, it's the same thing with like narrative in-person reporting. The third day I'm in the car with Romeo, he's going to be a lot more honest with me about the circumstances of his life and how things are falling apart than he's going to be on the first day where he's still performing a little bit and, and we don't really know each other. So, you know, I, I think in the situation of that story, I, I rode around with Romeo every day. He does a loop around, around the properties that he owns. And I went with him every day. And then in the afternoon, I would go back and I would go over and, and hang out with Alfonso on the porch at his house, um, which I also did probably four times over the course of the week that I was there. And um, in addition to, you know, a lot of other reporting with other landlords um, and things that don't show up in the story. I mean, there's, you know, there, there, there's so much reporting uh, that all of us do, obviously, that never that never arrives in the in the pieces that we write. But that's that's because like you you have to learn everything to figure out what the most interesting things are. And so yeah, with with the, this story that that Schenectady story, I think is maybe it's five sections, five scenes, right? Like five five moments that that basically you're you're living in inside the story. Like I saw you know forty moments, right? And and I was or more. I was I was in the car with Romeo on days when nothing interesting really happened. And there's a way to think of that as like a waste of time. And man, I, like, what am I doing? Not, none of this is going to appear in the story. But being there for all that time earns you into the moments that do end up being being worthwhile. So uh, I, I try to think of it a little bit as like, you know, that part of reporting, the part of reporting where you're just sitting in, in, a, in a time or a place and nothing is happening, or when you're on the phone with somebody and you kind of know, this is not really what I'm looking for or what I need. Like you have to have those conversations too, in order to figure out what you need and to have the good conversations. 
So when you're driving around with Romeo for all those days, are you recording? Are you taking notes in a notepad? How are you chronicling it? Yeah, recording some. If, if we're having like a more uh, sit down conversation, the, the, one of, this is like a little in the weeds, but in, in these kind of narrative stories, there's the only quotes in that story are dialogue, right? It's, it's people talking to each other. It's, it's Romeo talking to his daughter or Romeo talking to Alfonso or Alfonso talking to his daughter or landlords at a meeting talking about how their lives are falling apart. Um, it, there are not very many quotes in my stories where it's somebody saying something to me. The, the piece, I hope these pieces read almost a little bit more like a documentary where, where instead of feeling like my presence as, as the writer or the journalist is heavily felt, like instead of feeling like you're hearing people talk to me, you, you hopefully feel as a reader, like you're kind of like stepping up to a clear pane of glass and, and watching something happen for yourself. Like you're, you're hearing the landlord and, and the tenant talk to each other and talk to the people in their own lives. And, and hopefully if you feel like you've seen something unfold for yourself, um, the conclusions that you draw from that feel more like your own. And, and I think those conclusions stick with us the longest and, and are the most memorable. So yeah, these, the stories are built heavily on, on scene and dialogue. That's, you know, I do, I do other kinds of reporting where that's not the case. Um, but, but what that means, like just sort of in terms of recording, et cetera, is that if I'm having a conversation with Romeo, I know all of that. I'm not, I'm probably not going to quote him on any of that stuff, but all of the material is going to be super helpful because it's going to be embedded throughout the whole story. So I'm taking notes knowing that, you know, notes are going to be fine because I'm not, I don't need an accurate, an accurate quote necessarily. Um, but there are other times where like I'm running tape. I'm also like taking a lot of photos with my phone, just not, not because the Washington Post will run them because I'm a terrible photographer, but just so I can remember what a place looked like, what a, what the house looked like, taking little videos, um, all that, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but mostly it's, it's like a, you know, a notebook in my, in my back pocket that is then always in my hand and I'm um, writing constant notes um, and, and then doing voice memos on my phone and recording, recording some too. The story says, you know, photos by Libby March. So are you, when you're reporting the story, do you have a photographer along with you the whole time? Yeah. Great question. It, it really depends on the story and the photographer I'm working with. I'd say typically it's, it's hard to earn people's trust, right? It, it's like, and, and it's particularly hard to ask to be there for like really vulnerable moments in their, in their lives, which is um, what I'm often writing about. So my preference usually is um, to go in first by myself, but because it's, um, it's even more to say like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to write about the way your life is falling apart. And also there's going to be a photographer like clicking uh, along as we go. Like that's, that's a lot for people, understandably. Sure. Um, and it's, it's, I think in some ways it's also easier for the photographer if there's some trust built first. So I would say typically, and, and this was the case in Schenectady, if I'm there for six days, uh, maybe the photographer joins me for the last two and then might stick around for a day or two after I'm there. But it's like, at that point, the people are more comfortable. I'm, I'm further down the road in reporting and I can kind of make a handoff to, to a photographer in a way that, that, that works. All right. So here's Alfonso Hill and he's this guy and he's really struggling. And at some point you got him to talk to you. And then the, which I've done too. Hey, do you mind if we send a photographer by, or do you mind if I come by with a photographer on Tuesday? Yep. It's a big jump. Going from thanks for talking to me to my posing at your most vulnerable moment. You're not making any money and you're unemployed. We're going to take a picture of you and put it in a paper. Is that cool? Huge jump, huge jump. And like that, you know, so there are two other reporters who work on the same like uh, little narrative team that I do at the post. And we like, we talk about this moment, this jump all the time because it's so fragile, right? Like that, that, and that handoff is where things can go awry. Cause it, it, not that it's not real to people, when we show up as, as reporters, but then when it's like, Oh, like there's a photographer coming, they're going to take your picture. Uh, people get nervous and, 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 you know, managing, just managing relationships with like the people that, that we write about and, and sort of existing in this really strange space in their lives where, um, you know, you're not there as, as a friend or an advocate, you're there as a journalist, but you're also, they're also telling you things, hopefully that they're not telling anybody else. It's, it's like a really, those relationships are so interesting and, and the ethics of it are so complicated and just the ways to navigate uh, how to continue to, to have trust and, and in, in those places when you're, when you're asking for, yeah, things like, okay, a photographer now is going to come and take pictures or, you know, it, it's just, it's really, it's really complicated and it, and it never goes the same way. Uh, like in, in the case of this story uh, I think, 
Romeo was fine right away with the photographer coming and Alfonso, like I, I had to explain it to him a little bit more. He was like, I don't, I don't want pictures of my daughter. She's 13. I, I was like, I, I totally get it. That's fine. We understand. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it is always a hurdle. You're, you're, you're totally right that it's, you're, you're just kind of ratcheting up the commitment from somebody once, once you, you bring in a photographer. And that's also why, you know, ideally I'm working during the pandemic. It's been strange because uh, often I'm working with freelance photographers because post photographers have been traveling less for good reason. Um, but usually the people I work most closely with at the post are the photographers. They're, they're about 12 staff photographers. I've traveled all over the country with most of them. Um, and, and I know how they work. And I also then trust the way that they interact with people and, and that, you know, th those collaborations are often really valuable. Um, but, but lately it's been a lot more freelancers, which, which is just not that they don't do great photographic work uh, like, like Libby did, but it's somebody that I don't really know. So then bringing them into that situation is just, it, it's a little bit more to figure out. Does it make a difference? You have a photographer with you. Doesn't make a difference if it's a perky 26 year old woman, a year and a half out of college, as opposed to a gruff 60 year old guy who's been taking photos for 40 years. Doesn't make a difference if you're in a largely Hispanic community to have a Hispanic photographer, as opposed to a, you know, perky 26 year old white girl just out of college. Like, do, do those things matter? Does it help as a gateway with subjects at all? Huge difference. Yeah, not, it, it does matter. I mean, not that you can't get over. Uh, those hurdles as, as we do in our jobs all the time, right? I'm a, I'm a 39 year old uh, white guy and I go and report in all parts of the country uh, about people whose circumstances are totally different from mine. And I, and I can successfully build trust in those places. Um, but, but certainly, you know, like first impressions matter. And, and there, there are definitely times where, you know, I can think of one story about a, a mass shooting survivor in Oregon. Um, and she was like a 17 year old uh, and we had a really young photographer come out there and and that built a rapport where she just she trusted her like she felt more comfortable they were like sort of generationally a little bit more on the same same wavelength um so you know i think that's something that the post thinks about when they when they assign people to to stories and photographers to stories it's also another reason to like have more diverse and more representative newsrooms right so you can you can have people going to, to report in those communities who who understand them and, and who understand some of those issues in ways that i that i wouldn't uh without without arriving there and beginning to ask questions do you ever feel shitty shitty's the wrong word like um yes as a, yeah of course as i've gotten older i definitely have like become increasingly aware and thoughtful of this that i mean you kind of alluded to it like part of this job actually is salesmanship because um, you're convincing someone, Alfonso Hill doesn't really gain anything from talking to you. You gain a lot from talking to him. You can make the argument, well, he gains the opportunity to talk to someone, but that's not a huge, in his life day to day, it's not a huge benefit. Do you ever question yourself? Am I doing the so, right thing? Yeah, it's because it's an enormously complicated job because we're, you know, we, we, we get, we get paid. I get paid a salary from the post. I get paid for the books that I write. Uh, and I, and I understand why the people I write about cannot get paid and that that would that would taint the journalism in, in a way that that um, would make it advocacy work and, and inherently problematic. But it's it's a super complicated thing to navigate. And, and, and you know, also in my own life, uh, something that I think about a lot in terms of how can I have some balance in my life where there are other places where I can be an advocate and I can I can, you know, I, I feel like my job is often I go. And I hope I hope I do it in like a, an empathetic and a, and a heartfelt way. But I, I go and I I write about people's problems. I, I illuminate what's happening in their lives. I don't solve them, right? Like I, I sort of that's not my job. That's that's not what I do as a journalist. I, I go and I hopefully like as cliche as it sounds shine shine a light. Uh, but it's not a very fulfilling feeling sometimes to feel like you are. Uh, becoming aware of problems and making people aware of problems without doing anything actively to solve those problems. So I think in my own life away from writing, I, I try to figure out ways where I can do a little bit more to complete that circle in, in, in some circumstances. I, I also think it's true and it's not a small thing sometimes for people who are in uh, immense amount of, amounts of pain that they don't feel like is being heard or recognized to feel like they have somebody who cares and, and, and who, who is going to who is there and who wants to pay a lot of attention because they care. Um, I, I think that that's, that's actually not a small gift and, and sometimes is um, 
is is something that people really appreciate and and um, people really need is to feel acknowledged in their in their places of pain, uh, especially in a country where you know we're so polarized uh, and and so siloed into our own version of what's going on uh, with our own devices, with our own Facebook feeds, et cetera, et cetera, that we don't pay very much attention to what other people's lives are like. So I think having a stranger show up and really pay attention and and also say. I'm not just going to pay attention, but I think a lot of other people should pay attention. That matters to people. And, and that's a big experience that in some ways I think is, is life-changing. Uh, I also would say, although I can't tell it to people in advance because you never know what's going to happen, but one of the great joys of writing for the Washington Post is that a lot of people read the stories. And so, in fact, in the case of this story, you know, a, a few million people read it and some of those readers started GoFundMe pages and, and somebody like Alfonso might in the end be able to pay rent for the next five years. But, but, you know, as you can probably already hear, I definitely re- wrestle with the ethics of this stuff all the time because it's really, you know, it's, it's really complicated. And I, and I think if you're not wrestling with it, that's probably a problem. Like it's part of it is just being thoughtful about how you navigate these circumstances in people's lives. I never understand the callous journalist. That's one thing I don't understand. Fuck it. Blah, 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 blah. No, I, mean, I don't get it. And, and, and it's kind of like we were, I don't know. I don't know if it was this way at, at Delaware, but you know, like with, with the people that I went to Syracuse with, uh, you know, Jeff Passan, um, Chico Harlan, uh, who writes for the Post and is now the Rome correspondent, um, Greg Bishop, who, who works for SI and, and many others. Like we, when we were all there, I, I feel like we were sort of taught in classes that you shouldn't care. Don't worry about what, what people think about what you write about them. Um, the only thing that you should do is, is like be objective. Uh, and, and of course, like it's not the truth of, of, of how any human being works. Like it's, it, it, for me, it's impossible not to care. How, how can I, how can I spend a bunch of time with somebody? How can I go like literally bury myself into Romeo and Alfonso's life and then unearth that for a bunch of people and then say like, don't give a shit what they think about it. I think I did a great job. Like that's just not, that's not true. Like I, I can, I can try to not be, uh, sort of beholden to what I think that they're going to think. And I can try to remind myself that I sometimes in stories need to include things that are going to be a little hurtful to them and, and that they might feel a little painful because they're necessary for the story to be true and, and to be real and, and for readers to understand it the way they need to understand it. But there's no way I can turn off the part of my brain that cares. I also would say, if, if I don't care about the things that I'm writing and I don't care about the people or the circumstances that I'm writing about, how the hell can I expect somebody who's never met these people to care, right? Like the whole, the whole point of what I'm writing is I'm trying to get people to care. I'm, try, I'm trying to get them to pay attention and to, to see something and hopefully to feel something. So if I'm, if I'm reporting on a story and I'm not interested, I'm not curious, I don't feel anything, I'm screwed. Like it's, it's, it's all about feeling things for me. So that like sort of trite piece of journalism advice has not, has not borne out. Man, that's one of the favorite things, my favorite things I've heard someone say in this podcast. I could not agree more. And I think, and it was the same at Delaware. You need to be objective and you need to blah, blah, blah. And, you, and I know what they mean. I understand what they're saying and they are technically correct. It's impossible to not care about people you're writing about. And sometimes you hate the people you're writing about. And sometimes you love the people you're writing about. And to pretend those emotions don't exist is just an exercise in futility. Totally. And also to pretend that those emotions aren't useful. Like they right. are useful. They, they have to, you know, they drive the way you report and, and also they drive the way that you write. And then hopefully drive the way that people experience the things that you've written. Like it's, uh, you know, what, what we do in some ways is we take things in and we figure out what's going to make people feel things, right? That's, that's part of the job. So it's to the idea that we should be instructing young journalists to turn off their feelings and to turn off their personal instincts um, just does not make any sense to me. I, I think that's a huge disservice to people who are trying to figure out how to do this work. So do you, um, do you make sure Romeo and Alfonso see the story and then do you concern yourself with their reactions to it at all? Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, as soon as the story is published, like usually what I do is while I can't show them the story before it runs, uh, typically in a situation where I've spent a lot of time with people and and I've seen like a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff, I, I try to, I call a day or two before the story runs and kind of give them a heads up, like, Hey, Romeo, story's going to come out in a couple of days. Uh, you know, I can't show it to you, but but I do want you to have some sense of it before everybody else sees it so that you're not surprised. Like the, the story begins when you're in the car and you're going to see you're going to see Alfonso and, and this happens some some sense so that um, he's not going to like wake up at the same time that that 
you know, a ton of other people are reading the story and, and see the handful of things that I saw that I chose to put in. It just, it feels more fair for him to be a little bit more prepared. Um, so I, I do those calls before it comes out. Then when the story's published, I send it to them. The truth is they usually have seen it already and are getting feedback from people already. Um, and I also know that sometimes the way people respond to a story changes over time. Like th there are times when people, I I've written a story about people and they read it uh, and, and their initial reaction is like, this is really true. And, and I, I really appreciate the way you frame this, but some of the feedback that they get changes the way they feel about it negatively. It happens the other way, like where people might, might feel really upset. Like, why did you include this thing? This is really gonna cause problems for me. But then they hear only about all the other things and it changes the way they feel about a story that way. So I guess one thing I've learned is, you know, to know that it's a process that unfolds over some time. Um, and, and that some of what I can do is continue to pick up the phone. Like if, if, I've, if I've said to Romeo and Alfonso for, for two weeks, hey man, tell me everything about your life. Uh, please forward me all the emails you're getting. I wanna see all your text messages to each other. Like give me everything, everything, everything. It doesn't really feel fair for them, the story to run and, to me, and for me to be like, I don't care what's happening. Like I'm not gonna pick up your calls. I, I don't wanna talk to you anymore. That's just, it's not like a decent uh, thing to do as a human. So yeah, with both of them, I have continued to be in touch and frankly, <laughs> it's continued to escalate. Alfonso got arrested last week um, because Romeo was over threatening him and Alfonso came out with what Romeo thought was a knife. And, and I'm hearing from both of them about it, you know, all the time. And, and it's, even though the truth is I, I won't write about it again um, because uh, I wrote the story once and, and it was the story I felt like I should write. I still am personally curious about what's happening and also like, they've been used to being able to vent to me about it. And so like for however long they still need somebody to vent to about it, I feel like I should at least play some role in that because that's what I asked for. So it's interesting because you say he got arrested for coming out with a knife. If you were just hearing that in a bubble, you'd be like, oh, this guy came out with a knife. He should be arrested, blah, blah, blah. And oh, it's terrible. I'm sure he's a violent guy and blah, blah, blah. But when you put all this time into people, it just makes you really sad and kind of heartbroken for the guy. Totally sad, totally sad. And, and it's... You know, this is a, this is another thing that I guess I like have a lot of my own uh, like internal self help sessions about is is um, you know sometimes like my my job is is being in proximity to people who are uh, in rough shit and who are going through like the definitive worst experiences of of their lives uh, and and you know then I get to leave right and and I like I come back to my happy life and and like three healthy, happy kids. And for them, like the story doesn't end. Like they're, they're, that is the thing that they're continuing to live with and deal with and process and, and manage their way through. And, um, you know, so, so while sometimes writing uh, stories about people in pain or having conversations about pain or heartbreak or addiction or, or whatever it is that you're writing about, but that there are ways in which that can be taxing as the listener and, and it can be draining. Um, but it is nothing uh, in any way compared to, to the struggles of, of the people that often were, were writing about. Um, you know, and I also always try to remember that, that doing this job, like being there with, with, you know, with Romeo and Alfonso, even in like a house that's kind of collapsing in on itself with no heat, like that, that kind of reporting, it gives me way more than it ever takes out of me. Like that's, that's why I do this job. Cause I want to write about uh, things that are true and things that I feel like are important and things that I want people to know and see. And so having the opportunity to do that is like, you know, it, it's in many ways life sustaining for me. So, so to, to focus on the parts of it that are draining or hard or taxing as the journalist feels like it's just not the truth. It gives me way more than it ever takes out of me. I was in Alabama last, last month in really poor areas knocking on doors. And three days after that, I'm on my drive through line at Starbucks. You deserve no sympathy or empathy for parachuting in totally. and parachuting out. None. Yeah, exactly. And it's, and it's sometimes it's the, I'm reporting a story right now. This is very, since we, I live in Portland, since we moved here, uh, I don't think I've ever done a story in Portland. I, like I'm always getting on a plane and going somewhere else, but I'm, I'm writing right now about sort of, uh, you know, an emerging, uh, homelessness crisis that is really changing the look of cities up and down the West Coast. Uh, and certainly it's happening here. There, there are more people on the street um, because of the pandemic. Encampments have grown larger. It's like, it, it's a really big problem. And so I'm like 
now this week I go back and forth between like, I pick, I pick my five-year-old up at preschool and then like I drive up to the homeless encampment where I'm spending most of my time like up by the airport in, in North Portland and, and watch people who are having like a really difficult time and, and, you know, maybe smoking meth or maybe like, like numbing out however they possibly can. And then like I come back and, and try to grill for dinner and then I go back there at night. It's like, a, it's the, the sort of rapid switch is a very weird thing. Um, and has made me realize that I actually like those trips to Alabama, like that kind of thing. I kind of like a version of reporting where I can be just all in that space, right? Like you're, you're there. It's the only thing you're focusing on. You're, you're doing it all the time. Um, and then you get on a plane, you come home and there's like a little bit of a, a buffer in some ways. And this one has been weirdly challenging in, the, in that there's no buffer. It's, it's like, uh, you know, there's, there's a 10 minute car ride in between my super privileged house and this really nice neighborhood uh, and a growing number of people who um, are living like uh, just among huge amounts of, of hazardous waste. Have you had your kids say to your daddy, why do you smell like crystal meth? <laughs> Luckily they don't know what crystal meth smells like. <laughs> But definitely, definitely I've had them ask why I have so many flea bites on my legs. Before we continue with two writers singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my wife, Catherine. So our daughter, Casey, is graduating from high school this week, and I definitely think we need to get her a gift. We already ordered her a cake. I know, but we can do better. I was thinking about a nice bracelet engrave her graduation year. Better, damn it. I know we can do better. I know where you're going with this, and we're not getting another freaking USFL jersey from 503-sports.com. I know it's the king of throwback merch. I know you think she loves Herschel Bryant of the Philadelphia Buccaneers. You totally mangled that. It's a Herschel Walker and the Philadelphia Stars. Whatever. Not the point. She's an 18-year-old woman. Enough with that 503-sports USFL gear. I mean, they sell Canadian League, too. I want a divorce. You obviously wrote a piece... I don't know if it's your most famous piece. I don't even know if that's a, such a thing, but you wrote a piece in 2016 called How's Amanda, uh, a story of truth, lies, and an American addiction. Wound up getting netting you a Pulitzer. It's a great freaking story. It really is about this mother and daughter and the daughter's drug addiction and the mother sort of trying to guide her through. It's Libby, it's Amanda. It's more than flying the wall because you're right there. And and um, I kept thinking as I'm reading this story, reading this story like why are these people allowing him there? Like, why are they, why are they giving him this access? It's such a low moment and everything sucks. So um, why do they allow you there? Yeah. It's thanks for bringing up that story. Uh, I, it's, it's a story that's been on my mind a lot lately. Cause it, it, uh, it that story actually got, got optioned. And in, in this case, the director wanted me to, to co-write the screenplay with him. And the movie just came out with, uh, with Glenn Close and Mila Kunis. So it's, it's been in my mind. Um, and, and like, I just want to say you did that. So I have a, uh, I have a, one of my uh, books is becoming an HBO series. Right. And uh, oh, yeah, Lakers. Yeah. Right. I'm psyched about it. Right. Can't wait to watch it. Thanks. And it's, um, but it's super awkward. That sentence when people are like, they ask you about the book and you're like, well, actually it's blah, 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 blah. Cause you can't help right. but sound like a total right. douche. But you did not sound cool. douchey there. You sounded pretty good. That well, was very seamless. I don't think there's any way to do it without sounding like a douchebag. I can say that it's a, it's a sad, low budget heroin movie. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, that, 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 that will not crush, crush success in the box office. But anyway, uh, you know, like Libby and Amanda also, there, there are some stories. That's one, uh, I did a story um, about the Barden family after Newtown that just did stories that just live in my, it just changed me in some ways. Um, and, and that one about Libby and Amanda definitely did. Um, just uh, because you're right, it was like so much acute pain. And the days that I was there for were like intensely dramatic um, and, and, you know, life and death for them in, in a lot of ways. Um, and I think the reason they allow me, like, the reason changes over the course of time that I'm there, right? At first, like they allowed me to, they allowed me to come and be there because, uh, you know, I think they felt like um, part of the problem in this country is that addiction is highly stigmatized and, and is talked about um, as as personal weakness uh, and not as sickness. And and you know, for for years they had been living a life in in sort of the shadows of that stigma. Um, and, and particularly for Libby, uh, Amanda's mother, Amanda, you know, is, is an addict who was 
11 years into an active heroin addiction. Um, Libby for, for years had been dodging this question, the question that's the headline, how's Amanda? Because she didn't, she didn't want to talk about her daughter. She didn't want to answer it. She didn't know how to answer it. And, and she'd been sort of living under the stress of this, um, you know, not only the addiction, but the judgment, the, the perceived judgment of everybody around her. And I, and I think what I said to them um, was like, this is happening in, in your house, but also in a country where we're having 80,000 people every year overdose um, in a heroin epidemic that's been insane. It's happening to families all around the country. And, and one way for people to know about it and understand it is to think about not just addicts writ large and in general, but to think about like what's happening in your house and, and to think about not Amanda just as an addict, but about her as a person and to learn about her. And, and so, you know, I think at that point, initially they're like, okay, like, why don't you come here and we can meet you and we can see if we're comfortable. how do you actually find them? It's a little bit of a inside out story, but I was interested in this new drug Vivitrol because it's, it's less new now, but basically it's, it's an opioid antagonist. So it's a shot. If you can get this shot, it essentially prevents you from feeling high for a month. Like you can't feel high. So for somebody who's been an addict for 10 years and has been numbing herself out to reality for 10 years, my idea was like, it'd be really interesting to then watch somebody get this shot. And for a month, they can't be numb. Like they, they sort of reality is rendered clearly. And then they have to decide at the end of the month, whether or not they're going to get that shot again. So my, my initial conceit was, I want to write about that month. Like somebody who's been numbing out for 11 years, now a month of like sort of coming back to the reality of all the pain and the mess that they've made and everything else. And then are they going to be able to get the shot the second month? And the story didn't work out that way because Amanda couldn't even stay clean to get the first shot. But that was, that was the initial idea. So I started talking to doctors who prescribed Vivitrol, uh, talking to people in clinics around the country, um, and joining Facebook groups of addicts who were trying to get on Vivitrol. Met Amanda through one of those and, and a lot of other addicts. Um, but my conversation with Amanda stuck with me. She was just moving back into her mother's basement to try to stay clean for this one week window so she could get the Vivitrol shot. Um, and that's when I, I then went to go be there and spend time with them. You know, at first, reporting is a slow burn. Like the first day that I was there, it was a little bit awkward. And, and uh, they were not telling me how bad things really were. And, and they sort of gave me a tour of like, hey, here are the places where Amanda used to get high. And they were, they were nervous. Of course they were nervous. I was, I was this random guy who was just showing up in their lives wanting to know everything. So I think some of it for me is also recognizing when to be patient and knowing it can be an overwhelming feeling to start a reporting project, right? You know that better than anybody else where you're like, I, I'm here and I need to get all the way over here. Like I need all this stuff. And in a story like this, I know that in order for it to work, uh, I'm going to need to see Amanda's text messages. I'm going to need, I'm going to need to see all of the, the, the records from every rehab that she's tried, all these things. But even if they've said, okay, yes, you can come here that's not something I'm asking for in the first 10 minutes, right? It's, it's like, I'm, I know that they need to spend time getting to know me and they need, they need to tell me, tell me stories, not just once, but a few times in order to get comfortable. And, you know, and then when I'm reporting, I'm there with people as much as they feel, as much as they'll allow me to be there. Like I, I, I show up when they wake up and, and just kind of hang out and there until they go to bed, unless they need a break or they want me to go somewhere. I just, I've gotten kind of comfortable sitting in that space and, and not always asking questions or doing anything, but just being there so that they, they sort of get accustomed to my presence, get used to me being around and, and then, you know, become more open and start sort of living their lives around me. Um, so that, that was the case in that piece. Is it a flawed concept because you being there changes the reality? Totally. Yes, it is a flawed concept. Um, but, but it's, you know, the longer I'm there, the less it changes the reality. And at least I can be aware of the ways in which, my being there is changing reality, right? Like that's, um, but, but it would be naive and not true to say that things happen exactly as they would when there's a third person, uh, like third party observer there in the room. It definitely changes some things. And, and, you know, but part of being there for longer is that it starts to change less things. You know, the first, the first day when I was there with Libby and Amanda, Amanda, was like, you know, every day there would be just intense stretches of boredom and craving. You know, the first day I could see like, oh, she's kind of in a swell, but she would, she wouldn't tell me that she would like try to talk to me and I could just sense that she was a little bit more tired. But then by the fourth day that I'm there, I'm just the guy who's always there. And she's just like, I got to go out to the fucking garage and just like sit there and smoke and smoke and smoke and, and try to get through the next hour. And then by that point, we've had enough conversation. She's comfortable enough that I, she doesn't feel like she needs to fill that hour. I can go sit there, hang out in the garage, 
like pretend like I'm on my phone a little bit, whatever is going to make her comfortable, but mostly sit and watch her dealing with this for an hour, which I could definitely not do on the first day. So there's, you know, I think that that problem gets better, but it, it always is a factor. Right. So there's a point in this story where um, the two women are talking, mother, daughter, and uh, it's, excuse me, you need what Libby said, Libby's a mother. I need your pee for the drug test. Otherwise I'm not going to pass and I can't get the shot. What are you even saying? Libby said. And so Amanda began unwinding the lies she had been telling her mother the past week. The day she jumped out of the car in southwest Detroit and then disappeared for 12 minutes, she had been trying to find Sammy, but she had also been trying to buy heroin and she hadn't been able to find any. The appointment five days earlier that had been postponed at the last minute because of insurance, she had actually canceled it and then made a series of fake phone calls to confuse her mother. The night earlier in the week when she said she was going to sleep over with her twins, she had stayed with them for a while, played with them and taken them to a movie. But then she had found a babysitter and gone to a motel with a friend where she got high in $50 worth of meth a long acting opiate that was still running through her body now. Are you actually there when she's asking her mom for her pee? Yes, I was actually there. I went to Detroit for probably four days, five days, uh, and then came home and, and went back for another three days thinking, you know, I thought I'm just going to go back and see her get the shot. Um, and, you know, this is sometimes the magic of, of reporting is, is that, things end up being not what you think they are. Like I, I had no idea that Amanda was lying the whole time either. Um, and, and um, but I think by, by having been there during the first trip, I'd seen all the same things that her mom had seen. I'd been fooled in the exact same ways um, came back expecting that, that like we were going to get in the car that morning and Amanda was going to be clean and, and go get a shot. And I, I was surprised in the same way that her mother was surprised. Um, and that's, that's really like, you know, it's, it's, a, it's sort of a simple recipe for stories, but, but I, I try as much as possible to put myself in a situation where something is going to happen. Like there's, there's stories that are static. When, if you, if you arrive in somebody's life and there's nothing happening, like that's going to be a problem. Like there's, there's, then you, you sort of have to find the tension and create it. Whereas with the situation with Amanda, I went there because I knew one way or another, She's either going to get this shot or she's not going to get this shot. There's 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 a structure already in place. There's tension, momentum, and an engine. Like this, the the homeless encampment story that I'm doing here in Portland. I I don't I'm not just picking a random camp uh, at a random time. It's like homelessness has has skyrocketed. The city in many ways is like looks in, in rough shape. And so now Portland, you know, has decided for the first time in the pandemic to start clearing some of these encampments and to wipe them out. So then I I talk to the city, I do reporting, I figure out what are the 14 encampments that you're that you're clearing out next week. And from those encampments, I then choose the one where I know I'm not just going to write about a static situation. These people have been living here for a year and a half and the city's about to come in and tell them like, you got to get the hell out of here. We don't have any place for you to go, but you got to leave. So then it's like, there's, there's tension. There's the story can only be so bad, right? Because there's something is going to happen. Um, so I think a lot of it for me is, is trying to choose stories where not only is it like an interesting person and an, and an interesting situation, but also hopefully an interesting time where there's there's something something is going to sort of unravel. Have you kept up with Amanda at all? And do you know how she's doing? Uh, I've kept up with both of them a lot, in, in part because uh, because of, of of the movie coming out. Amanda, I would say since I wrote that story, she has relapsed and recovered uh, a dozen times, um, and 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 now. She seems to be doing well, um, but like, it's always such a tenuous place. I'm almost hesitant to say it. Like she just, um, you know, and that was the hard thing about, about ending that story too. Um, and also writing an ending to the movie is like for, for anything to feel honest, it can't, it doesn't end, right? Like it's, that's the whole thing about, um, you know, somebody who's been in active addiction for 11 years, like, like it's not like having it be too all better and like, okay, it's over. It's not, that's not honest to their experience of it. Libby still every day wakes up and wonders if Amanda is high. She's never, she's never going to trust again. Oh, she's, she's fine. And I don't have to worry about her and it's all okay. So some of it is, is like, um, although my instincts sometimes are like, man, I would really like the ending to be cleaner or um, to feel like we know something definitively. The truth often is that the endings are not clean and, and the things are not definitive. So like trying to, to write endings that are satisfying while still honoring that truth um, is tricky because because for Amanda, it's continued to be just a, a roller coaster. How's Amanda might be the best headline or the most perfect headline for a story I've ever uh, I've ever seen as far as if you think about it, you're a dad, I'm a dad. 
those questions come all the time. How so-and-so, how so-and-so, because people only want to hear, oh, she's doing great. She blank. Oh, he's doing great. He's blank. Because nobody wants to hear, yeah, she's really struggling lately. She's has a lot of anxiety. Cool. And also like, you know, when you think about like, we're, we're lucky we do have kids that we can give honest answers about and they're good, right? Like you have a daughter who's doing great and is about, about to go off to college. You have, but, but if instead you were having that conversation and like all of, all of the other parents were like, oh, my daughter's going to UCLA. She's doing this, she's doing that. And you were the parent who was like, my daughter is, is addicted to pain pills and, and I'm seeing track marks on her arms and she's now in our basement. Um, that's a hard thing to be honest about. But like the, the really sad truth is that's like uh, the situation for, for millions of, of American families at the moment. Let me ask you a final thing that I'm fascinated by, which is, so as you noted, there's a, as you bragged about incessantly, there's a film coming out that's out now called Four Good Days. You just keep talking about it and bragging about it. It's really obnoxious. You know, I see just for people who are who can't. This is a podcast. You don't see you're wearing a mink coat and you're freaking smoking a cigar, which is really. I'm going to take the private jet after this to oh, yeah. back to the homeless camp. You're actually in the Playboy Mansion as we speak. It's just gross. Um, I read a tra- an interview you did uh, about writing a screenplay for this. I could be totally wrong in this. I could just totally misreading. I feel like maybe you were uncomfortable writing a little bit fictionalized about a true story that you dove into and one that was really, really harsh and raw. And now it's like, yeah, we want you to write this screenplay and it's going to be based on that. But you're kind of making a lot of the stuff up. Is that cool? Really weird. And I think it was um, weird in part just because I I think there are some journalists uh, who like play around with fiction on the side or, I've, I've just, I've only written things that are true. And in fact, things that have to be like verifiably true or else I get fired, right? Like that's, uh, so so making things up, um, I would not say was a skill that came supernaturally, which is probably good for my journalism, uh, but but was was like a really interesting learning experience in writing uh, and trying to write a script. I'd also never, never written a script before. Uh, so you know, and I think the fact that I did have like these real women um, so clearly in my mind, uh, the ideas of creating two entirely new characters that were very based on them was a strange experience. I mean, I, you know, I also hope that like it helps the script or a movie that it's grounded in truth. And, and uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even know where to start if I was just making something up from scratch. Um, but it was really weird. So, so many things about that process were weird. It's so... Uh, you know, the making of, of a movie or a show or whatever, it's so collaborative, right? And, and one of the things, um, and control is really diffuse. Uh, and, and there are ways in which that can be great. Like, like you have people who are great at their job and bring something that you could never bring. But I think one, one thing that, it, that I really appreciate and love about journalism and writing and is if you're writing a book or you're writing a story, like it's yours. And, and there are things that feel like, like, you control them if 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 there are if there are problems if there are holes which there are in everything I've ever written like it's your fault like you didn't something didn't something didn't turn out the way you wanted it to turn out it's you have over a piece of writing you have absolute control it's it's like uh, that's such a such a powerful thing as as a creator and um, whereas in in you know a television or or a movie space even even in this case of writing this writing a script. I'm still, you know, the director uh, has has much more power and, and control than I do. That the you know Glenn and Mila have way more. The people paying for to produce the movie have more. Like the you know, it's just it's it's a conversation instead of something that is that is yours and you have ownership over. Um, and there were ways in which that was really fun and really interesting, but also ways in which it made me appreciate. Like, gosh, it's 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 really nice and really simple to just know here's my job and I'm going to go do it and I'm going to go do it the best I can. And, and the thing that people are going to read and the impressions they're going to take away are, are that rests all on, on me doing this and, and me doing it as well as I can. My least favorite phrase is, or the thing that turns me off the most is wonderful collaborative opportunity. Like I'm like, nah, it's, I'm good. Leave me alone for two totally. years. Write a book. I'll see you in two years. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's cause then, it's yours. You can schedule it. You it's, it's like you're, uh, I love that. I, you know, and, and as daunting as it is to begin a new book project, which you're so good about doing it's, there's also magic in knowing here's where I am. Like, this is the thing I want to do. How can I, how can I get, and it's, it's all yours to figure out. It's, it's a, that's, that's really a, a pretty fun thing. I'll see you in two years is my favorite thing ever. I'll see you in two years. Love it. 
Yeah, it's can, for me, can it be, I'll see you in five years. Two yeah. years is fast. You're, you're, you're crushing. Was it weird seeing the movie? Super weird. Uh, yeah, it was weird seeing the movie. I mean, it, you know, the, every part of it was weird. Not like, not bad weird. It was like, you know, going, uh, you know, going and being on the set or doing rehearsals or like it was, it was all fun and, and, uh, sort of weirdly glamorous in ways that our jobs are usually not. Um, I mean, my wife really liked it. She definitely would like it if I just tried to be a screenwriter. Uh, although that's not that's not what I want to do. It's yeah. more it's more fun to go along. Um, it was weird and also, but also moving to to think that like you know this quiet thing that I saw happening in this house um, is now like a version of it is being portrayed by these two famous actors uh, for people to go and and see on their TVs. And um, it was that was like weird and and uh, I don't know, kind of disarming in some ways, but but also powerful. So it was an awesome learning experience and, and, you know, careers are, are long and, and, you know, just as you've sort of reinvented versions of it along the way. And like, I think so much of doing this work is trying to keep yourself interested in, and get better at stuff and do stuff that's new and still challenging. And um, I'm grateful to have like a job at the post that I love, but the stories I'm often writing four to 5,000 words, whatever it might be. Um, it has, it has a rhythm to it. And, and so I think for me, sometimes finding ways to disrupt that rhythm a little bit with whether it's a book project or, or something like this is, um, it's, it's just a, a good way to, to try, try something new. Well, listen, man, I'm a, uh, a huge admirer of your work and your approach. And, uh, I really, seriously, I really appreciate you doing this. It was tons of fun and a huge gift to me. And, and I'm, I'm a, you know, it's mutual admiration. So I, I, uh, even when your daughter takes over your Twitter feed, I'm, I'm still, I'm still reading it. I want to thank today's guest, Eli Saslow, for joining me on Two Writers Slingin' Yang. You can follow Eli on Twitter at Eli Saslow and read his ridiculously great stuff in the Washington Post. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Writers Slingin' Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and giving the show a nice review. I make zero dollars and zero cents for doing this. It's all about word of mouth. Music is by the one-of-a-kind MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.